Hey, I'm Kim Forrester and welcome to Eudaimonia, the podcast that is all about flourishing. More than just the mundane or pleasure and pain, Eudaimonia calls for us to create a good life. It's about fulfillment, inspiration, joy. So plug in, relax and get ready for the goodness as we explore the characteristics and daily practices that can help you, your loved ones and your community flourish. Of all the phrases in existence, I forgive you can be one of the most difficult and one of the most liberating to say. Marina Cantacuzino is an award-winning journalist who has worked for most British mainstream publications including The Guardian, The Telegraph and Hello! magazine. In 2003, in response to the invasion of Iraq, she embarked on a personal project collecting stories of people who had lived through trauma and injustice and sought forgiveness rather than revenge. As a result, Marina founded The Forgiveness Project, a not-for-profit that explores the concept of forgiveness and strives to build a climate of tolerance, resilience, hope and empathy. Now today I'm talking with Marina about forgiveness. Is it possible? Is it beneficial? And is it truly necessary for us to forgive and forget if we want to live a flourishing and fulfilled life. Marina, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. How are you there in London today? Um, Very well, thank you. It is a wonderful day in London, you know, unseasonable, but um, we're all enjoying the sun and the warmth. Well, I'm so delighted to have you here with me today because the work that you've been doing is incredibly valuable, insightful, and really profound. As I was researching your work with the Forgiveness Project, I was struck by how misguided and how limiting our definition of forgiveness tends to be in our society. What would you most want my listeners to understand and perhaps reassess about the concept of forgiveness? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting one. And I certainly, when I started out on this journey, had lots of misconceptions myself. I mean, I think the main thing is that people tend to assume forgiveness is about condoning and rewarding bad behavior, Mm. letting the perpetrator, the the person who's harmed you, off the hook. Um, and, And also, I think, in a sense, there are people who talk a lot about forgiveness, the proponents of forgiveness, sometimes speak as if it's, you know, it's a really easy, glib, um, cheap, almost cheap thing to do. Mm. Um, whereas in my experience, from all the stories I've collected over the 15, 16 years, is that it's difficult, it's painful, it's costly. Um, but of course, it's, it's a transformative. That's why people choose to go on that journey, if you like. Um, so yeah, but everything I've tried to do is about reframing forgiveness and, to, and also taking it out of the straight, what I see um, as a sort of straight, straight jackets of religious discourse. What I can see that you're imbuing in this dialogue about forgiveness is, um, you know, we're taking it from the Instagram post quote um, and and imbuing it with humanness. Um, that's what I really love about it. I think most people, for instance, would regard forgiveness as some kind of magic portal. So th- mm. there's, a, there's a single moment um, or an intention or a conversation. And in that moment, you are led into some permanent state of peace and grace and acceptance. In your experience, is that an accurate reflection of the reality of the process of forgiveness? 
Uh, that's no, it isn't actually. No, I mean I see it as a process. I think I think what one thing someone taught me very early on was, um, well, two things. One is that one day you can forgive, and actually the next day something will happen. Something will trigger the pain again, and you might hate all over again. And that's how it is. And actually, just now before I spoke to you on the radio, one of our storytellers was talking. Her sister was killed by serial killers a long time, many, you know, two or three decades ago, but she, it was an anniversary, so she was on the radio. And she says, you know, she's always talked about lining herself up for forgiveness. She says she always sees it as a verb because it's ongoing. So that she said it's not a noun. You can't tick it off and say it's done. Now, I think occasionally people can do that, but it's very rare. And And as you rightly say, it's kind of like, seen as this magical key to serenity, um, something maybe just for the morally and spiritually superior or the mentally strong. Um, and, I, and, and I don't think any of that is helpful. I think it's about, I mean, I think definitions are really hard around forgiveness, and I've thought long and hard about it. And there's a well-known academic called Fred Luskin, who I heard speak some years ago, and he's written loads of book about forgiveness he said he said like me you know he said I struggled with definitions I've come down to one word he said and that word is freedom um so that's kind of interesting that everyone has different definitions and, and different ways of of articulating it and different um limits to what they think is forgiveness but I think it's about really not it's not about um not having a angry moral painful response to being harmed or, or seeing others being harmed it's about feeling all that um but deciding not to respond with revenge and or lasting resentment and it's about you know they're not being defined by that thing or person who's hurt you not being captured and trapped in the hurt and it's about not being broken by the burden of, of victimhood and while it while it doesn't mean that you reconcile with the person or people who've hurt you i think it means reconciling with the hurt how do you do that? It seems to me that it's that indefinability, the mysticism behind forgiveness that means that we as individuals and as a society, we kind of reach for examples of forgiveness yeah. in, in yeah. our lives and in the media. Um, in 2007, I'm going to go to one particular yeah. example that struck me personally. And there was a school shooting in a small Amish community in Pennsylvania in the USA. And several young children were gunned down in their classroom. And then promptly afterwards, the gunman took his own life. And I do remember the very next day, I believe, the, on the news there was talk about this incredible show of forgiveness and how the families of the slain children had actually gone to the family of the gunman and were conveying their forgiveness. And and I do know that the Amish community in particular, forgiveness is a very, very important part of their worldview and their faith. Um, I believe it might have been Fred Luskin that actually referred to them in one of his uh, articles as super forgivers. But in, yeah. in, in that moment, watching the Amish families go within 24 hours and start proclaiming forgiveness, I don't know what was in their hearts, but I do know what was in mine. And I was thinking there is no way that I could possibly find myself to the point where I would be able to forgive in that moment. Let's say, for instance, that there are those who are pressured through culture or through faith or for worldview to express their forgiveness before they've actually 
intimately and authentically got to the point where they're ready to do so. Do you think in your experience that we do our loved ones, our friends, our society a disservice when we expect or demand forgiveness at any stage of the grieving process? Well, I certainly would say um, if you demand forgiveness, yes, you're doing a huge disservice. When, when it comes to the example that you used of the Amish, um, and you could, if you remember, a similar thing happened in Charleston where some black church <laughs> members yes. were killed by a, a young white man. Yes. Um, and they, again, they talk very, very quickly. And it makes people feel very uncomfortable. But their faith calls them to walk towards forgiveness. That's how I see it. And who, and I think, as you suggested, who are we really to judge that? It does feel difficult. It's something I agree. It doesn't feel like a process in a way. It feels like it's it's happened, and it's something that they they must do. And I think I think that's not. You know, we talk about premature forgiveness. There definitely is such a thing as premature. One of the, our storytellers is a woman called Mary Johnson, whose son was killed, murdered, um, and she's she's very articulate about that, about what happened. She does say, I was inspired by my faith. And so it's an impact statement at the trial. She says, because the Bible tells us to forgive, I want you to know. She says this to the parents of the man who killed her son. I want you to know I forgive her. Him, I forgive him. But she hadn't, she says, I hadn't actually forgiven. She says the root of bitterness ran deep. Anger had set in and I hated everyone. I remained like this for years for years, driving many people away. So she spoke of forgiveness, but she wasn't, and she realizes that looking back. Um, because if you're only centered in your own pain, you can't see the pain of others. So she was just driving people away. Then she met him in a face-to-face restorative conference in the prison, and that's when everything started to shift. And I think Desmond Tutu's really, really clear about this as well. I mean, he's, he, I like the way he says, don't be a masochist if someone's abusing you. You know, you can forgive and release a relationship. Um, so I think, yeah, it's it's difficult because none of us want to judge anyone. No, there's definitely definitely is such a thing as premature forgiveness, where you might be motivated by a desire to reconnect or restore a sense of community, but your heart doesn't feel it, and then there's some bite back. I think. Well, then it's surely it's not truly forgiveness if yeah, your heart isn't both, feeling it. Both, Indeed. Both so so let's at the look at the flip side of that coin. Do we instigate how when we refuse to forgive? Yeah, when you say refuse to forgive, that sounds like quite a strong reaction because I'm very clear that not forgiving isn't the same as hating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I we include some of those stories within the forgiveness project. Um, so, for instance, Rami Elahan, whose daughter was killed by a suicide bomber, a teenager in Tel Aviv, he says, I do not forgive and I do not forget. But my um, the suicide, suicide bomber was a victim, just like my daughter, you know, grown bitter from poverty and exclusion. He says something along those lines. So mm. it's all about understanding and compassion. And I think, so refusing, as I say, refusing to forgive doesn't mean you hate and if you have been gravely hurt rank and resentment actually can be initially be very positive because they're release. it's a kind of empowering empowerment enables you to reclaim your voice i think the problem comes when it persists 
and sometimes it persists across generations, and then it begins to contaminate. There's a wonderful quote, actually, from James Baldwin, the American writer, who says, he says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their pain. Oh my um, goodness, yes. Yeah. So let's reframe that then. There, perhaps there's no such thing as refusing to forgive, but simply not being in a place where you are able to do so. Do you think that we know when we've reached a point where we are ready to step into forgiveness? Is there an instinctive or intuitive knowing that says, you know what, I, I want to forgive now? Or is it necessary sometimes for us to reach deeper beyond our pain, beyond our anger and resentment and say, okay, it's time for me to actually take action on this. Yeah, I think it can take a long, long time to, to think about forgiveness um, or to find that space. But for other people, um, it comes right away. Um, it's mm. instantaneous. That's very rare. I think that's very, very rare. Because there are so many different ways of responding to being hurt. I mean, a very common response is to become frozen in silence. And, and that, again, can be helpful for a while. But Maya Angelou says there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Mm. Oh, it can eat away and you can you know, self-medicate with drugs and alcohol thing, or you can dump it on others. <laughs> and then people very often choose, choose a path of compassion, empathy and forgiveness because it makes them feel better. Yes. It's the most imaginative and creative response. It changes the narrative. If you think about it when you're upset about something, you can't stop thinking about those, that thing. The intrusive thoughts take over your life. And sort of enduring self-pity is, is very harmful. So I think people very often find a place where they um, just, well, uh, I'll give you, I often use the story examples because I don't see myself as, you know, this great expert or anything, but I've learned, everything I've learned is from the stories I gather because it's real lived experience. So Bud Welch, for instance, whose um, daughter was killed in the Oklahoma bombing many years ago, he describes how after the bombing, um, he started self-medicating with alcohol. His work and relationships suffered terribly. And that was a whole year. And all he could do was fantasize about revenge. And he said one day, he said he always used to go to the wasteland where the building, the bombed building, once stood. Mm. And he said, my head was splitting from drinking the night before and I thought I have to do something different because what I'm doing isn't working. And that, you know, that started his, his journey of forgiveness. And another example is Wilma Dirksen, whose daughter was murdered um, in Young Daughter, 13. And she describes how the night that the body was found, a man comes to her door. He's also the father of a murdered child. And he describes to her and her husband everything that he had lost, his wife, his relationship, his sanity, his job. And she says, we went to bed that night horrified by the graphic picture he painted. Having just been through the pain of losing our daughter, it now seemed we might lose everything else as well. And so mm. we made a decision that night. We'd respond differently and we chose the path of forgiveness. So it can be a very conscious decision. What you bring up there a couple of times, though, in your answer is that there is actually a benefit to forgiveness. So as much as um, we can't truly define it and we certainly can't expect or demand it of ourselves or others or judge when people are or are not able to reach for forgiveness, mm. studies do show 
that there are benefits if we can find it in ourselves to step into forgiveness. Mm. And so tell me about some of those. Yeah, in fact, the American Psychological Association analysed you know, many research studies over many years, and they found that forgiveness not only restores a victim's sense of personal power, but also improves their mental and physical health. In other words, you know, having a forgiving nature, you might describe it as, you'll, you will have better relationships, less mental health problems, and improve physical health. So, and there's one interesting article called Forgive, um, study rather called Forgive to Live, where they interviewed over three years, um, you know, a group of, I think it was over 65 year olds, very different demographics, different ages, different health histories. But it showed unequivocally that being able to forgive extended their lives by up to three years, which, you know, is quite very specific and mm. quite an interesting study, you know. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you've got a forgiving attitude, you're less stressed. Absolutely. You're less anxious and you're less depressed. And all those studies, again, feed into that. Indeed. Um, I was just, I've been studying the science of happiness th through the Greater Good Science Centre. Yeah. And literally yesterday they were talking about forgiveness. And one thing I found fascinating is that if you forgive today, quite literally tomorrow, your happiness quotient will go up. You will feel yeah. happier tomorrow if you are able to find it in yourself to forgive. But now, not yeah. all of us in life, thankfully, are going to have ex experiences that are as, as violent or deeply traumatic as the yeah. stories that you share through the project. But do you think it's just as beneficial for us to reach for forgiveness in those smaller micro violations that we encounter? So the driver that cuts us off in the traffic or the neighbor whose dog continually poops on the lawn. Do you think it's also important for us to learn to forgive in those very small ways yeah definitely i mean i often talk about forgiveness being the oil of personal relationships because what i chose to do through the forgiveness project and that's probably because of my background being a journalist is to take quite extreme examples because i mm. think you grab people's attention more but what i found right from the beginning of doing this work that people from all over the world really were emailing and sending in their stories and saying well I haven't had that experience, you know, my, thankfully my child has not been harmed or murdered. But what I read in that story has really helped me deal with this rift I've got with my family or the bullying I'm doing, dealing with or whatever. So over the, and, and I think over the years what I've really witnessed is, you know, in my own life, and I'm sure you'd recognise it as well, you know, how easy it is for people, for families, for friends, for individuals to put others into exile because what because of something they've said or done or, mm. or even, you know, something they haven't said or done. And it's always seemed to me what a brutal response to being hurt. So while I would never prescribe forgiveness, because that's very unhelpful um, and can become a tyranny, I really think forgiveness is really accepting that people will let us down, you know, and it's about letting go of the expectation that they won't. You know, because not we're yeah. all different. Um, Fred Luskin, um, I saw a video yesterday, and he speaks about how forgiveness is the acceptance of the word no in your life. When life says no to you, when you expect yeah. it to be a certain way, and including expecting to be safe from violence or, you know, safe from abuse and harassment, um, when life presents a situation to you that says, well, no, that's not what you're going to get, Fred Luskin says that forgiveness is the acceptance of that word no. And I think that's really beautiful and powerful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that is. 
Let's come back to you just for a moment there. You touched on how this 15 years of studying and storytelling and facilitating um, the awareness of forgiveness mm. has has perhaps changed your perspective on a day-to-day basis. Mm. How has the personal exploration of forgiveness enhanced your experience of life? Well, I think, you know, the people that I've met have taught me so much. I mean, I wouldn't say... I haven't had anything massive to ever, well, you know, we all do have things to forgive in our personal lives. It's helped me in that respect. I've learned so much about compassion and, and empathy, and I often hold their quotes. Or, you know, when I do an interview, there's usually one or two things that people, everything is different. The way they describe forgiveness is different. The processes are different. I always one thing that or two that I hold dear, and I keep those quotes in my heart, one of my favourite um, and it's very relevant to today's, you know, um, very binary discussions and competitive political situation is one quote, this is just one example of many, is a guy called Khaled Alberi. He's a former jihadist from Egypt, mm-hmm. long since long since renounced that. But one of the things he said to me was, the most dangerous thing in life is to believe that truth has just one face. Um, <laughs> so things like that keep me going you know and David White who's a philosopher he said all friendships of any length are based on continued and mutual forgiveness um, so I just hold those like in my mind and try and incorporate them into my daily life really what strikes me is the stories that you share and even the, your answer there it only goes to highlight the absolute humanity humility and compassion that's actually built into mm. forgiveness. So um, just to let the listeners know, as part of your work, you've formulated a forgiveness toolbox, correct? Mm. And that includes yeah. the seven skills for forgiveness. And I assume that these are skills that you have um, ascertained during your time of hearing stories and observing these um, experiences of yeah. forgiveness. Yeah. What is fascinating, I'll just read them out briefly so that the listeners can understand. Skill number one, going beyond understanding. Number two, building bridges. Three is empathy. Four is curiosity and courage. Then we have accepting responsibility, resisting conformity, and going beyond resentment. Now, none of those there seem to talk about condoning actions or moving on. They all seem to be this beautiful sense of social connection or connecting with the humanity in other people. Exactly. And that is about absolutely key to it. It's about moving from dehumanization to rehumanization. What happens is that when we label people who we fear or who we hate or even who we dislike and we call them evil and bad, mm. that when we do that, we consign them to a place beyond hope and redemption. And I think that's deeply unhelpful for humanity. You know, over the years, people say things I think a lot and I keep rethinking and redefining and refocusing. And then someone will say something. I say, oh, yes, that's what I'm thinking. But you've put it so much better than I ever could. And Bjorn Eiler did this when I interviewed him a few years ago. He is a survivor of the massacre in Norway where mm. the, you know, the white supremacist Anders Brevik killed so many young people. And he, um, he says he believes that we have to recognize Brevik's humanity. And he says, can I just quote what he says because I think it's very helpful. He says, I find people's... I find people's efforts to dehumanize him really scary because that's what he tried to do to us. 
At times, people have refused to say his name, which makes him almost half-godly. Calling him evil or calling him to be certified as mad suggests what happened was caused by one single madman, almost like a natural disaster. But there's a great danger in that, as we need to recognize that these things may happen again. So what he's basically saying, we are all connected, you know, at some level, we're Mm. all capable of harming others. And I think another thing that many of the stories talk about, you know, if I had lived your life, would I have been capable of doing what you did? That's empathy, you know. Yeah, there but for the grace of God go I, as they say. Absolutely. So you speak about forgiveness as being transformative, and it strikes me, listening to you there, that you're not just literally talking about transforming your emotional well-being, but literally about how you sit in the world in relation to other people. It transforms your awareness of humanity and how we work as as a species, as a whole. It's quite beautiful. Yes, I mean, I talk a lot about restorative narratives because stories are really powerful. I'm a mm-hmm. journalist, I know that, but stories can harm. They can fuel the fans of prejudice and they can normalize hate. So I only work with restorative narratives. Now, restorative narratives show how communities rebuild after periods of disruption, they show how families reconcile after conflict, and they show how individuals recover from broken hearts. And they act as, of course, for good in the world, I think, and showcase content that can help and is about recovery and rebuilding. So, um, yeah, and I want to sort of create spaces where we can talk about and have creative conversation and prove the quality of human connection. There's so much. Um, the internet has turbocharged abuse and, and it's become normalized in many ways. And so I'm trying to sort of create an antidote in a small way. <laughs> Do you think that's something you'd encourage my listeners to do, perhaps, is learn to amplify these restorative narratives a little more than what we tend to do on social media or even in our own minds, in our own lives? Turn off the tally sometimes and and focus on something that is actually going to facilitate greater understanding, compassion, humility and forgiveness in the world. Yes, definitely. And I think there are ways of doing that. I've one of the people I like a lot is Brenny Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you know her work. And yes. she talks about being really careful with our language. She talks about, you know, not poisoning the water supply because we all have to drink from it. So she says, yeah. don't call the police pigs. You know, just be very, very careful with your language. And I think, you know, that is so important. because, And so I'm very, very careful everything I say. I, I still get angry and I feel incensed by some things that politicians say and individuals say, but I will not, I will try and meet hardness with softness because I believe in the in the martial arts model that that actually is a far more disarming and effective force for change. Yes. So could we bring that back to a personal level and say, if you are feeling resentful or angry towards someone, you're not doing a lot of good for any of us if you are using derogatory language about that particular person. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say, definitely. Okay, wonderful. Marina, now this final question is one that I ask all of my guests. Can you share a morning reminder? So it might be a morning ritual or a mantra or daily intention that can help my listeners not necessarily forgive everything from their past, but at least move toward a greater sense of acceptance and healing? Well, when I think about that, I mean, I think for me, the main thing is encouragement to build 
empathy and an invitation for move from why me to thinking about why them, or which could then lead to why us. It's mm. an invitation to find common ground. There is always common ground somewhere where we are human beings. And I suppose if I'm thinking of a ma- mantra, I would steal a little quote from Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, where Atticus says, you never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view, until you climb inside of their skin and walk around in it. So the mantra will be, let's climb inside of someone else's skin and walk around in it today. <laughs> Wonderful. You write about that in your books. Um, yeah. walk, walk a mile in their shoes, no matter how dirty or soiled they may be, correct? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Marina, if more people want to learn about the Forgiveness Project, where can they go to find out? Well, our website is www.theforgivenessproject.com and and Twitter is at ForgivenessProj, P-R-O-J. Terrific. And you have a new book out, I see. Yes, Forgiveness is really strange. I've written it with a psychologist called Dr. Matty Noor, and it's a graphic book, so lots of illustrations, and it's looking at the psychology. Well, I'm incredibly grateful to you, Marina, just for for being here with me today, but also for the work that you're doing, the profound storytelling that you're undertaking, and the, um, the sense of empathy and compassion that you're amplifying through the world. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. According to the Reverend Desmond Tutu, forgiveness says you are given another chance to make a new beginning. You've been listening to the Eudaimonia podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how to live a truly flourishing life, please subscribe and check out eudaimoniapod.com for more inspiring episodes. I'm Kim Forrester. Until next time, be well, be kind to yourself, and always give forgiveness a chance. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.